0: All right, good morning. Uh, you guys may be seated. If you have your Bibles with you, uh, please turn with me to the book of John, John chapter 2. Uh, maybe for some of you guys like, well, what's going on today? Uh, Pastor Gunn, you know, hurt himself again playing basketball, or why is he not leading worship? I think starting this year, I wanted to try to do something a little bit different where, you know, my my job is not to do everything in this church. My job is to train and equip you guys to you know, serve the church together. So that's why I wanted to try to have more uh, of you guys uh, serve the church and uh, for me to also uh, train in that way. So uh, that's why I wasn't leading worship today. So if you guys were confused, just wanted to give you guys a heads up. Uh, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John and please I saw all stand as we read God's word together. John chapter 2 verses 12 to 22. John chapter 2, verses 12 to 22. If you don't have your Bibles, you can, you know, share with the person sitting next to you, or you can open up your app, whatever is easier, as long as you have uh, something to look uh, to as we fo- if you follow along in reading God's Word together. So John chapter 2, verses 12 to 22. After this, he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You guys may be seated. do you all pray with me one more time. Father, I want to ask of you to help us not to be distracted, at least at this time, during this moment, as we dive into your word. Lord, we do confess that oftentimes we live a life, far away from your word we don't even know where our bibles are at Uh, we don't even open up uh, the bible app on our phone because we are just so caught up in the busyness of life Lord, we do confess that oftentimes we depend on ourselves or we depend on anything else but you to get through another week but we do pray that today will be different we do pray even if we fail a million times a thousand times Help us to be reminded of the importance of clinging to your word, importance of depending on a savior, a true savior in our Lord Jesus Christ, rather than trying to be our own savior. For we know that that doesn't really last that long or doesn't get us anywhere. Be with, be with us this morning, Lord. Many of us struggling, uh, many of us tired, our hearts jaded or very hardened with, things going on in this world, we do pray and ask that you will soften our hearts this morning to receive your word. Uh, thank you again, Lord, for this opportunity, this privilege for us to not only listen, but to learn and apply your word into our lives. Uh, be with us uh, as we treasure this time together. We pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. If you guys are taking notes, the title of today's message is Rebuilding His Temple. Rebuilding His Temple. Uh, as we start off this morning, I just wanted to quickly share just a personal story of mine. Back in 2013, and that's when I was actually living in Korea, I had an opportunity to travel to many different countries. And one of the countries that I got to travel was to is, uh, India. Has anyone here been to India before? Nobody? Okay. Um, now, for those of you guys who have never been to India, it's a really, really, really big country. I didn't know until I got there. Uh, and so mainly what you do is you travel by either plane or the train or the overnight buses. So for us, to save cost, we traveled uh, by using these overnight buses or these uh, trains that would last like 14 hours, 16 hours, 18 hours to just get to one city that is uh, next. Uh, That was the norm. And one of those days, uh, we booked a train to go to this particular town that was only supposed to take about nine hours. Uh, but it actually ended up taking 24 hours, and it was perhaps one of the most horrifying experiences of my life. Uh, in India, the entire country could be split in two, uh, the two major religions, Hinduism and uh, Buddhism. And for Hindus, once every 12 years, once every 12 years on that one specific day, they would have this major festival called uh, the kumala where everyone, and I mean everyone in the nation of India, would pilgrimage to a town called Alabad near the Ganges River. So to give you guys a quick picture, India, we were in Agra, that's where Taj Mahal is, and we were traveling to a city called Varanasi, and Alabad was right in the middle. And the reason why they do this, why they make this pilgrimage, is because in their belief, as they bathe in that Ganges River, they believe that it would cleanse away their sin and atone for all their past mistakes that have piled up from those 12 years. So every 12 years, they would go to this river to take a bath. Well, little did I know, the day that I was traveling happened to be that day. One day in 12 years happened to be That day when I was traveling, and out of all the places, the meeting place happens to be on the way to my final destination. And I remember being stuck inside a train that was not moving for over 10 hours. And if you guys look at the picture, if you can go back, uh, there were literally people on top of the train, in the train, all around the train station, And um, some were even trying to break through the security to storm into our carts. I remember, I felt like I was in a zombie apocalypse movie as the people were flooding into our carts. Some were hiding right next to where I was sitting, asking me to please be quiet so they don't get caught by the security guards. Um, I remember, actually, I survived. That's why I'm here. I survived, and I remember reading in the newspaper the next day, (coughs) excuse me. And it was reported that approximately 100 million people, 100 million people, gathered in that town or that city to celebrate this great festival called Kumala. And it goes down as the greatest gathering of humans on earth. Bigger than a Taylor Swift concert, bigger than the Super Bowl, bigger than any gathering of humans on earth, Kumala was the largest gathering. For Muslims, they too have a similar pilgrimage called the Hajj, which is Arabic for a pilgrimage that takes place every year in the city of Mecca in a country called Saudi Arabia. And this festival would last five days. Not as big as the, as the uh, Kumala, but an average of 1.5 million people would gather every year uh, their Muslims are gathered every year because they are required. If you are a Muslim, you are required to make your way to Mecca at least once in your lifetime. So during the five days, they would perform different rituals to symbolize their unity with other Muslims and to pay tribute to their God. And only Muslims are allowed to partake in this hajj, to go to Mecca. What's really interesting, I is if you really study the root behind how this all began... It actually originated to to commemorate the event in the life uh, of who they call Prophet Ibrahim, which is Abraham in the Old Testament, which leads us to uh, today's passage. If you look at today's passage, we see another pilgrimage happening, the Passover, as people are flooding into this city called Jerusalem. If we were to back up, just before today's passage, we saw how Jesus was at this wedding feast, right? Last week, Jesus was at this wedding feast where the wine runs out. So Jesus uses this opportunity not just to perform a miracle, not just to put out a show, but to display a sign by turning water into wine to symbolize this new creation, this new beginning that is full of blessings. That whoever believes in this Messiah will receive this new wine, this new abundant joy, and blessing in and through Jesus Christ. And after this event, we see in verse 13 that the Passover was at hand. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem. You see, back in the day, during when Jesus was on earth, Jews, just like the Hindus and just like the Muslims, the Jews were required to pilgrimage over to the city of Jerusalem, not once every 12 years, not once a year, but three times a year. That's a lot, three times a year. Uh, you see, but for the Jews, they were required to visit three times. And this tradition stems from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 16, verse 16. If you look with me, Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, it says, Three times a year, not once, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God at the place that he will choose, at the feast of unleavened bread, that's the Passover, at the feast of weeks, and the feast of booths they should not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So regardless of where you live, in order to celebrate and commemorate these three feasts, Passover being one of the main ones, they are required to travel to Jerusalem and visit the temple where they would worship God through prayer and offering sacrifices. This was part of the Jewish law. Now, of course, not everyone kept this law, but this was the law And it's been recorded that somewhere around 200,000 to about a million people will show up in the city of Jerusalem three times a year. So Jesus, in wanting to obey the law, goes to Jerusalem during the Passover. However, as soon as he enters the temple to worship God, rather than seeing a multitude of people gather to worship, what does he see? He sees wickedness all around. So shows uh, Which leads us to our first point, wickedness in the temple of Jerusalem. If you look with me in verse 14, what, does he see? what do we see? In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and money changers sitting there. You see, a temple was supposed to symbolize two things. It was supposed to symbolize God's presence and it was supposed to symbolize God's glory. God's presence and God's glory. A temple was a place where people as sinners can go and commune with a sinless God by offering sacrifices to atone for their sins. And uh, so during each Passover, you are required not to come empty-handed. You are required to bring a sacrifice that is unblemished, without defect. An animal that you can afford for it to be sacrificed or killed on your behalf for your sins, so that your sins can be forgiven. Now, for those who are well off financially, they can afford an oxen or a cow, but for those who are not as financially well off, they can afford two pigeons. And as you offer these sacrifices to the Lord, he would then receive glory. Now, structurally speaking, the temple of Jerusalem was it was massive. If you've ever been to Israel or have you been to Jerusalem, they have this like temple built right now which is not the real one but it is massive and it had different sections and parts even within the temple right they would have a section just for the priests to worship and then they would have a section just for the jews where they can worship and then on the outskirts they would have a section called the court of gentiles where people like foreigners would come to worship it was designated for those who were out of state those who are not from Jerusalem, those who traveled miles and miles on foot to come to Jerusalem so they can worship God. So this is where our story takes place today. As Jesus enters the temple, and the first thing he sees is the court of Gentiles, which is the outskirts of the temple. And the first thing he sees, rather than finding people worshiping God and praying, Jesus saw something closer to a shopping mall or something closer to a loud crowded, bustling market full of wickedness. Right? Verse 14, as soon as Jesus enters the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So then the question we've got to ask is, what's so wicked about this? What's so wicked or messed up about what's happening here in this temple? We see the emphasis of Passover was the sacrifice in the temple. So wherever you were traveling from, you were required not to come empty-handed, but you were required to bring an animal that was fit for the sacrifice. So back in the day, they didn't have airplanes, right? Where you can simply check in your animal, check in your luggage. They didn't even have Amazon Prime where you can just ship your animal before you get there, right? You had to carry or haul everything, including the animal that was for sacrifice. So it was very difficult and inconvenient As some animals could get lost on the road. Some animals could get damaged or hurt. And according to the Jewish law, the only animal that was fit for sacrifice was unblemished, without defect. No scratch, no bruises. So the Jewish religious leaders had this brilliant idea. Like this billion dollar idea, literally. I mean, if Shark Tank existed back in the day, they would have won. Because that's how crazy this idea was. They thought, why not provide the animals right on the, top, right on the spot? Why won't we just sell the animals in the temple? This way, those who are traveling from afar, they don't have to carry the animal. They don't need to go through all that trouble to bring the sacrifices. Not only that, let's also provide our own version of currency exchange. Because you see... Everyone who visits the temple were required to pay temple tax. They were required to pay tax, but the only currency that they accept is the temple currency. Meaning every foreign currency, it could be dollars, ones, yen, whatever, it was not accepted. The only uh, acceptable currency was the temple currency. So if they provide a service for them, not only to purchase the sacrifice animal, but also providing service for exchanging the currency... That's like killing two birds with one stone. But you see, the idea itself was really good. The idea itself was great, but the motive behind that idea was wicked all around. Because you see, for these Jewish religious leaders who were behind all this, the main motive for them was not to serve the foreigners, was not to help them, but it was profit, profit, profit. For example, even for an animal that wouldn't normally cost as much back in anyone's hometown, they would attach a substantial premium just so they can rip off anyone and everyone to profit in return. I don't know, I don't know how much cows cost. Maybe it would be like $1,000 at home, but oh my gosh, this is temple grade, premium choice, right? Better than any Kobe beef. $10,000, right? They would hire these inspectors to distinguish between which animal is clean and which animal is unclean. So even if you brought a sacrifice from home, if an inspector who was tied with a Jewish religious leader said, oh, that's an unclean animal, they would have to buy another animal right there on the spot. And all the animals that they were selling would be labeled as temple grade, right? Or the highest of quality, but even that is to be argued. Not only were they ripping people off because, uh, through the animals, they were also ripping people off as they were changing money. Although they would offer this currency exchange service, as foreign money was not acceptable, they would charge significantly more for an exchange fee or a service fee. It's like, can I exchange $10? Yeah, the service fee will be $20. Like That makes no sense. But this is exactly what was happening in the temple back in the day. And the man behind all this, the guy who was behind all the market and all the money changes, was this guy named Caiaphas. Caiaphas was this great high priest who was given the authority to rule and govern over the people of Jerusalem. Yet instead, he was busy. He was busy trying to make profit by ripping people off, rather than caring for those that he has been entrusted with. Not only was Caiaphas insensitive to the people regarding social injustice, but the bigger issue behind all this, the bigger issue why Jesus was so upset and angry was because of his insensitivity to worship. Not only was Caiaphas insensitive to people, but also insensitive mainly to worshiping God. As I mentioned before, temple was to be a place of worship, a place where God is present with his people, and a place where God is glorified. However, rather than worshiping God and glorifying God, Caiaphas was busy worshiping wealth and glorifying himself. And because of that, what was once a place of worship for Gentiles has now become a house of trade. So loud, so wicked, so dirty, so filthy, so difficult for any Gentile to pray and worship God in that place. Because there's so many distractions. And it is in this situation where Jesus acts. It is in this situation where Jesus opens his mouth. Look with me in verse 15, right? He does recreating the temple in Jesus. Verse 15, it says, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. So as soon as Jesus sees this, we see in verse 15 that he makes a whip, and he drives everyone out. We see Jesus pouring out the coins and he flipping tables. And now this account of Jesus Cleaning out the temple is actually a very famous passage. Maybe many of us have heard this in the past. And it's actually mentioned all across the other Gospels. If you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this passage, this incident is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. So if you weren't aware of the four Gospels, there are four Gospels in the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're all writing about the same thing. They're all writing about the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, but from a different perspective. Right? If we were all to write about, I don't know, the coronavirus, you guys would all have your own different perspective in how you guys view the event. Similarly, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were all writing about the same event, Jesus cleansing out the temple, but there's a clear difference here. Let me put up all the passages up on the screen. Uh, we're not going to read all of this, but if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, if you look at the emphasis here, right? Matthew says... Jesus drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. Mark says Jesus began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. Luke says he began to drive out those who sold. But then when we come across John, what do we see? John says he drove them all out of the temple with sheep and oxen. Out of the four, the only one who mentions animals was John. Was that because John was an animal lover? Was that because he was in favor of animals more than Matthew, Mark, and Luke? I think there's more to that. I believe there's a greater significance to why John puts emphasis on the sheep and the oxen. In just the first two chapters alone in the book of John, we are both, we're being bombarded with this imagery of new creation, this new beginning, this new hope, New identity in Christ, and this passage is no different. John gives emphasis to Jesus driving out the animals. Why? It's because Jesus is the ultimate sacrificial animal, he's the ultimate sacrificial lamb. John is interested in showing the readers and all of us who are here today that these animals, sacrifice these animals who are there to be sacrificed do not need to be there anymore in the temple. Why? Because the ultimate sacrificial lamb has come to Jerusalem to lay down his life for sinners. As John the Baptist introduced back in John 1.36, behold the lamb of God, the sacrificial Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, to atone for all of our sins once and for all. As Jesus comes into the temple in Jerusalem, he was not simply trying to clean out the temple. He's not not trying to cleanse out all the dirt or the wickedness. But rather, he was interested in recreating, rebuilding a new kind of temple. And that can only be done through Jesus Christ. As Jesus offers himself as the ultimate sacrifice to atone atone for all of our sins once and for all, it is through his death and death alone where a new temple can be established. They're not going to just build, Jesus is not going to just build a new temple down the street, no. He's trying not only to cleanse out the temple, no. He's trying to rebuild a new kind of temple. in order for that to happen, Temple signifies two things God's presence and God's glory. In order for that to happen in the most perfect and holy way, Jesus knew that it had to be through him, through his death, through his resurrection. Now, the Jewish Jewish leaders weren't aware of this truth because they were simply shocked, right? This dude comes out of nowhere, makes a whip, and starts driving people out, right? Who's this crazy guy think he is, right? So they confronted him in verse 18, pretty much saying, Who do you think you are? What are you doing? What makes you think you can do this? And when Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up, I can just imagine the look on these religious leaders' faces. Okay, you come here disrupting our business, and you're saying that you can build a temple like this in three days. Do you know how long it took to build this temple? It took 46 years to build this temple, and we're not done yet. According to history, it takes 36 more years. So 46 plus 36, do your math, math majors, 82 years. It took 82 years to build this massive structure in Jerusalem. And Jesus, this dude, thinks he can build it in three days. You might be a carpenter, but there's no way you can rebuild this in three days. Are you crazy? The significance of Jesus' response in verse 19 lies on the meaning of the phrase, raise it up. Verse 19, right? Raise it up. You see, in the original language, this word can mean to structurally reconstruct a physical building. But whenever the topic of resurrection, whenever the New Testament talks about the topic of resurrection, this word appears. Raise it up. So what is Jesus saying? When Jesus said, destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days, he was not referring to this massive structure. What he was referring to was his death and his resurrection. Through his death and through his resurrection, Jesus was not just cleansed, but create a new temple. What's fascinating is how John realizes what Jesus was talking about after his death and resurrection, when John and the other disciples were present at that time, they did not know what Jesus was talking about. They were just clu- just as clu- clueless as the leaders. But after Jesus died, and after Jesus rose again, it began to make sense to them. Look with me in verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. John was aware now after Jesus died, right? When therefore he was raised from the dead, and his disciples remembered that he had said this, they believe the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. Although the disciples didn't know either what Jesus was referring to, to John, he revisits this event and realizes that Jesus was talking about not the temple of Jerusalem, but a new kind of temple, a spiritual temple where God both dwells and is glorified in full. So as Jesus drives out the animals from the temple, he is signifying that he is the ultimate sacrifice, that he is the sacrificial lamb who will be slain on our behalf. And through his death and through his resurrection, a new spiritual temple will be built by his flesh and his blood. And this temple is not going to be like the temple of Jerusalem, but so much better, so much greater. And this new temple built by his flesh and his blood is actually us. It's us. The temple that is being built is in us, in our hearts. Meaning you and I, if you are in Christ, through his death and his resurrection are called to be temples of the living God. Do you guys know that? If you guys place Jesus as the center of your life, accept him as your Lord and Savior, that means you are now committing to live your life as a temple of the living God. Which leads us to our final point. Called to be the temple of the living God. Can we just quickly turn to the person sitting next to you and say, You are called to be the temple of the living God. So awkward, right? No, you are. The Bible tells us you are called to be the temple of the living God. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So as his temple as his people, as his temple, we are to symbolize two things. What does the temple supposed to symbolize? God's presence and God's glory. So we are to now symbolize with our bodies, with our lives, God's presence and God's glory. That means that when Jesus promised us that he will be with us until the very end of the age in Matthew 28, that means he is present among us now, he's living in us right now. And He will promise us to be with us until the very end. So whether we like it or not, as you accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, He is making a home. He's building a temple. He's building a home in your hearts, a dwelling place, a temple in our lives. So as God dwells in us and among us, we are then called to live out our lives to glorify Him. To glorify God with our lips, with what we say. To glorify God with our heads. Our thoughts, to glorify God with our hands and how we serve. Friends, how are we doing in that manner? Or better yet, what do we make of this body? What do we make of this temple? Do we glorify God with our speech? Do we glorify God with our thoughts, with our actions? Or are we becoming like Caiaphas? and the Jewish religious leaders, where we have become too busy, too preoccupied in glorifying ourselves. Where we place ourselves on the throne of our lives, throne of our own temples, when that seat doesn't really belong to us. Perhaps for some of us, we've become so desensitized to the greatness and the holiness of God. We've attended church long enough and know bits and pieces of the gospel, yet there is no sense of reverence There's zero sense of reverence when it comes to worship. Oh, I know this song. I don't really know this song too well. I don't like this song. Oh, man, the pastor's speaking way too long. There's no sense of reverence when it comes to worship. And this is the most important because the authenticity of our reverence for God indicates what we think of God. Our authenticity of our reverence for God reveals and indicates what we think of God. Meaning the way we worship, the way we worship God reveals what we think about God. So how do we think about God? If we were to evaluate how we view worship, how do we personally think about God? When we are called to worship God with our lives as a temple, we often allow our lives to be tempted and affected by different idols, different temptations. When was the last time we gave God our wholehearted, undivided worship? Friends, if Jesus came down today to take a look into our lives, to take a look into our temples, how would he react? Going back to today's story, you know, for me personally, uh, I feel for Caiaphas. I feel for these Jewish religious leaders because, you know, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but as I was meditating on this passage throughout this week, I was thinking, where did this all go wrong? Where did this wickedness begin? I'm sure, okay, I'm trying to give them the benefit of the doubt. I'm sure Caiaphas wasn't thinking from the very beginning of his birth, how can I use and abuse God's temple? How can I abuse God's temple to make money off of it for myself? Meaning maybe Caiaphas had good intentions in the beginning. I mean, who knows? Maybe, just maybe, Caiaphas really did care for those who were traveling from afar and really did want to provide an easier option for them so they can strictly focus on worshiping God during the Passover. Maybe Caiaphas and the Jewish religious leaders thought they were honoring God by serving His people in this way. Maybe their goal, their ultimate goal in the very beginning wasn't to rip people off, but was to help people so they can focus on worshiping God. But somewhere along the line, the temptation and the greed of wealth probably got to them and overwhelmed them. Like one more dollar for this oxen, one more dollar for this sheep, it's not going to hurt anyone. A 5% increase on the per transaction, it's not going to really hurt. It's not going to break anyone's bank. They're traveling all the way here anyway. We're still honoring God and serving his people, aren't we? Like little compromise here, little compromise there. And what do we have? Not a temple, but a self-glorifying and self-satisfying, self-centered empire. And friends, I believe this is the danger of sin. This is the danger of sin. And this is perhaps where many of us, if we're to be dead honest, stand today. Friend, no one wakes up in the morning. Maybe some of you guys did, but no one wakes up in the morning thinking, how can I disobey God's word today? Right? No one wakes up in the morning saying, how can I sin in the worst way possible today? Right? No one wakes up like, oh my God, today is like the perfect day to sin. But just as God is at work 24-7 and wanting to rescue you, to remind you of your newfound identity in Christ, there's someone else working just as hard, right? The devil is working just as hard to distract you, to tempt you, to draw us further and further away from God. Do you guys know? There's a spiritual battle going on in our lives. And friends, if we're not meditating on Scripture on a daily basis if we're not in tune with God every day, if we're not keeping each other accountable, you're sitting next to somebody that you care about, right? When's the last time you prayed for them? When's the last time you asked them, how are you struggling? What are some sins that you're struggling with these days? How can I pray for you? If we're not keeping each other accountable on a daily basis, we are so prone to wander We are no different than Caiaphas and any of these Jewish religious leaders. Rather than pointing fingers at them, I believe this scripture is a reminder for us that we are just like them. And this is God's divine grace. Great reminder for us to wake up, not only individually, but also corporately, to fight together, to be a holy temple of God. To be honest, I... I consider myself no different than Caiaphas. I consider myself no different than these Jewish religious leaders For I too am prone to wander. I too can easily fall into making my life about myself more than anything else. Orchestrating everything, micromanaging everything in my willpower to maximize the glory that I receive. What about you? If there's anyone here who feels so far away from God, for those who feel as though they've tried and they're just tired and exhausted from just constantly failing in life or failing God, may we be reminded through this passage that Jesus is not done with you. Jesus is not finished with you yet. I think one thing that he reminds us through this passage is, yeah, we can We have the tendency to be just like Caiaphas and just like the Jewish religious leaders. But another great reminder that he's reminding us today is that Jesus is the one, the ultimate sacrifice, who drives everyone out of the temple, so that he can atone for the sins, not only for those who obey, but even for those who are rebellious like us. Through his death and through his resurrection, a new, holy, beautiful temple is being built each and every day in each and every one of us. Meaning we're a work in progress. We're not a finished product. Praise the Lord, right? So he's like, man, I'm good. No, there's greater. Greater um, things are coming. And Jesus will never give up on you, even if you have given up on him so many times. And he's reminding you, yet despite your struggles, despite your failures, right now, you're not, he's not done with you. You're a work in progress. He's not done with you yet. Despite your failures, despite your sins, despite your rebellion, Jesus will continue to build his temple in you and through you. That is his promise. You can't run away from it. You can't hide from it. He's going to keep working. He's going to keep building, whether you like it or not. And sometimes, as he builds his temple in you, it's going to hurt. Right? He's going to have to hammer away and cut away some of the things that don't belong in the temple. He's going to have to drive away some of those habits, some of those temptations and distractions and addictions in your life that is hindering you from becoming a beautiful and holy temple. Yet we complain, God, why are you allowing this to happen? I genuinely believe God is sovereign. And the stuff that's happening in China with the coronavirus I think God is even sovereign over that. As I mentioned last Sunday when we were praying, it's usually in those incidences, usually in those cases, those events in life where there's a crisis, where people come to know Jesus more. And maybe God wants to do something, not only in China, but in this world, through this virus happening. Yeah, there is a greater life that awaits. There's greater hope, eternal hope in Christ. May we be reminded through this passage, friends, that yes, we are capable, just like these leaders, to be wicked in the ways that we treat God's temple. But may we also have hope, hope everlasting in knowing that Jesus is the one building his temple in you, and he will never give up. Even if you want to run run away, even if you want to call it quits, he will never, ever give up on you, and he will continue to build his kingdom. He will continue to build his throne, build his temple in you and through you. So may we find hope in Christ and in Christ alone. Let's pray together. Let's pray for about a minute. Uh, Before we go into a time of response, let's pray and ask God to, uh, number one, uh, maybe cry out for help as we see these different tendencies in our lives and becoming like these leaders, wanting to make life about ourselves, wanting to profit off of even just coming to church. We have this consumeristic mindset thinking, what can this church offer me? What can I gain from this church? God sees that. And he's reminding us, I died for that. I died for you. Let's come to the Lord in all honesty, confessing our wickedness, confessing our failures, because he does not judge us. He wants to restore us. He wants to revive and renew our hearts. And I think the first step is acknowledging that we are desperately in need of him. So let's cry out to him. Let's pray to him, saying, God, won't you help me? Won't you be with me this morning? Uh, cleanse out and rebuild your temple in me. Uh, let's pray for about a minute, and then uh, we'll go into a time of response. Let's pray together.